live from the Mecca of Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah. This is Heart of the Matter, where Mormonism meets biblical Christianity face-to-face. -face. I'm your host, Sean McCraney, standing next to perhaps, uh, with the exception of my lovely wife, I think perhaps the most beautiful girl we've ever had on Heart of the Matter. And she has exceptional talents, too. You're not going to believe some of the things this girl can do. This is my good, dear friend, Sarah. I'm very good friends, uh, best friends with her dad, Roger. And Sarah's here in the studio audience, and I've learned a few things about Sarah. She is in what grade? Fifth. Fifth grade. Your favorite subject is? Math. Math. I bet you're better in math right now than I have ever been in my life. That is really good. And she's also going to be in a beauty contest this coming Saturday, right? Yeah, do you have a gown to wear? Yes. Very good. And I hear there's a talent show in that. In that. Mm. Now, do you know what your talent's going to be? Um, yeah. What will you be doing? Um, one of them will be skiing, riding horses, and barking like a dog. Say what? Barking like a dog. Barking like a dog. Now, I have a hard time believing a beautiful girl like this could bark like a dog. Will you do it for our audience? <laughs> One more time, please. <laughs> You're a hero. One last thing before you go. Applause from the audience. Everybody. By the way, the pound just came in here. A guy with a net running around. One last thing here, Sarah. What does Jesus mean to you? He's um, my Christ and Savior. And, keep going. And he is the one who created us and lo loves us all. Beautiful. Thank you so much for being on the show. Round of applause for Sarah. <laughs> if I'm not mistaken, I could be, uh, I think this is our 400th show tonight. So, hooray. Got a lot to talk about, so let's get to it. I asked John who is doing the Monson lawsuit research to give us a call and give us an update after we give our presentation for the night. Last week, uh, actually several weeks ago, we reported that a Christian, noted Christian apologist by the name of Dr. James White went after me and my position on Calvinism on one of his programs. Uh, after that, we said, we're not gonna go and get in the ring with Dr. James White uh, because he's a brother in Christ and we thought that would be it. Um, I stated that it's one thing to go after Mormons because they're not part of the body and to try to dialogue and, 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 and go back and forth with them. It's even another thing to go after institutions, Christian institutions that might have some things wrong, but the man-on-man -man, uh, ad hominem attacks that kind of thing that go on between believers. Uh, even in my uh, assassination against things that go on in the church, I try to keep names out. Usually, every now and then, I'll slip a noted one in. But uh, we received an email from Dr. James White this week. It said, Sean, a month ago, you wrote to us about my reviewing your comments on Calvinism on the dividing line. I did review your comments and wrote to you twice but I have not heard back from you. Perhaps I missed your reply. Did you reply? If not, I'm wondering why. 
Maybe I had a sty in my eye, or slipped on a banana cream pie, or got in a fight with Dr. Bly. Uh, all kidding aside, let me say something I have found to be a universal truth. I haven't seen an exception to it yet. And that so-called apologists, whether they're Mormon apologists or Christian, whatever, they share some very common characteristics. We've received enough emails from them over the years to know, I think. First, there's always kind of, and I'm sorry, a smarmy politeness. It always comes in at the first part of the email. It's like, good day, sir. Um, say, our ministry here at blah, blah, blah recently got wind of a comment you made, and we just wanted some clarification on the stance that concerns us. There's all, almost always that use of the word concerns. We're concerned. Um, and then after this kind of perfunctory politeness comes the stabbings. And uh, they grow in ferocity as the email is long. So Dr. James White continues and he says, quote, of course, I did that review assuming you were orthodox in your general theological stance. I don't even know what that means, uh, orthodox in my general theological stance. But I've been informed that this is no longer the case. In fact, I was just directed to your recent program wherein you, well, demonstrate you've never understood the Christian doctrine of God, sadly. Typically at this point, a little arrogance pops out from between the lines, which is then sublimated by some suggestion or invitation that the feigned Christian out of love will step in and help. Dr. White's email continues, he says, given that I have defended the biblical doctrine of the Trinity against Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Muslims, Oneness, Pentecostals, etc., I would be happy to find the time to travel up to Utah this year to engage you in a public debate on the topic. Let me respond to Dr. White's offer to happily travel up to Utah this year to engage me in a public debate by sharing my personal view on this stuff first. The idea of public debates within the body is very odd to me. Uh, it's like the eye telling the foot, this is how you need to operate, foot. Uh, how come we can't just disagree on certain things? Dr. White can challenge my views on Calvinism and on God and our eternal punishment in a burning hell from his own shows and from his own ministerial outreaches. And I can do the same thing. I can challenge things from mine. But why the face-to-face -face debate over what we respectively believe when we read the Bible? If you think this solves something, I would suggest it rarely solves anything. Public debates, between brothers especially. In fact, I think all public debates typically amount to are those who support Brother White saying he won and those who support Brother McCraney saying he won and we all go home. It's really just kind of like a, a Jerry Springer carnival show for religion. So I believe minds and opinions really change when people are able to hear a clear even if it's a single-sided presentation, and then go to other sources and hear the opposing side, rather than to see egos go at it, to see who knows more and who can recite more uh, in a public forum. Along these same lines, debates and their supposed victors do not make truth. 
Uh, it's known that Hitler, in the early days of trying to establish the Third Reich, won most political public debates. Uh, didn't mean he was right, though, did it? So Dr. White walks about debating this person and that. He writes and says, I want to debate you. It's, it's, and I would suggest that he's probably mastered the art of public confrontation. I would imagine that that is why, it's like when I was in high school, I noticed that all the guys who were on the wrestling team, they always wanted to wrestle me. It's because they knew how to wrestle. I didn't. They'd say, come on, let's wrestle. I'd say, that's what you do. Why would I want to wrestle someone that's what they do? So it's kind of the same thing. However, this all being said, I accept Brother uh, White's desire to confront me and my position in a public forum. And uh, we wrote him back and said, okay, uh, we're going to come to some rules. I prefer not to engage in debate, but rather have Brother White stand up before whoever attends, probably at the University of Utah, and explain why Calvinism is biblical and how the five points, what they really mean. And then I'll get up and explain how it's not. And we'll see whose cogent argumentation stands uh, up to the scrutiny of Christians and LDS alike who would be in attendance. I'm, I'm up for that anytime. And then maybe we can have a Q&A where I question him with 10 things and he can question me and we'll get up and we'll respond. And then maybe we can have the audience vote and decide who wins. I don't know, but that's better than a tit-for-tat uh, debate to see who can out-scripture somebody else because you know as well as I do, you can get on Facebook and go endless with that kind of thing. And it doesn't really amount to much. The doctor finished his email with some strong assessments, uh, another standard of the apologetic approach, saying, your views of Calvinism are irrelevant. Thank you, doctor. Since no one who is not biblical in their view of God would have any basis for understanding the depth of the gospel that Reformed theology represents, presents. We could find out very quickly if your words from your show are true, that is, that we, whoever we are, have mindlessly endorsed a man-made term. And then he signs it James. So we accept your challenge, Dr. James White. We'll work out the details and we'll let our audience know. Stay tuned, the date, time, place, format, and topic of discussion, and we'll see how that plays out and if it does any good in the end. Due to the amount of information that we're covering on our topic tonight, the second part of God, really the second part of the Trinity, uh, we're going to skip from the Word and get right into it. So let's begin with a prayer. Father, uh, God, we seek you and need you and pray that your Spirit will teach us all things and not my ideas and philosophy, not my insights. If they're incorrect, let them evaporate, let them burn. But Lord, we want to be people who seek you in spirit and truth, and we pray that your spirit will be with us to discern, and that we will go and open up the word and decide for ourselves what is right and what is not, and discard the ideas and philosophies of men. We pray you'll be with us now, and, and our staff and volunteers, in Jesus' name, amen. In our examination of religious matters, this ministry has always tried to look at what came before a thing being studied, what happened during the thing that we are studying 
is created and then what follows up after the thing is created. So let me give you an example. In Mormonism, when we did our examination of the Book of Mormon, we first started out by looking at what came before Joseph Smith started to create this book called the Book of Mormon. We looked at everything that was going on then. And then we talked about what came during the creation of the Book of Mormon, what were in the local newspapers, what he was doing in his life. And, and then we have examined what has happened after the creation of the Book of Mormon. What, he, uh, what changes have been made, how the LDS used the Book of Mormon, etc. So I will attempt to take the same approach in our look at the doctrine, the formation of the doctrine of the Trinity. What prefaced Trinitarian doctrine, that's a lot of what tonight is, what occurred at the time that the doctrine of Trinity was established by Constantine and, uh, and Nicaea, and, uh, and then what has been the result ever since. So let's start off, and I want you to ask yourself a question. Uh, some of you may not know how to answer this, but some of you might. Do you think the so-called Christian doctrine of Trinity reflects more of the Judaic, biblical, monotheistic God that the Bible teaches, or does it more reflect polytheistic paganism that has existed in, 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 uh, from the Greeks and other places before. In other words, again, does it represent the Jews, which were completely monotheistic, there is one God, period, or the Greeks that say there are multiplicity of gods or plenty of gods or trinities of gods, and there are trinities of gods within Greek culture. Which does it better represent? We all read the same Bible, the same verses, the same context, and clearly from the Judeo-Christian perspective, there is only one God. That is definitive. I mean, that's what distinguished Jews from everybody else in the world. So again, do you think the doctrine of Trinity best reflects Judaism, the forerunner to Christianity, or the polytheistic views of paganism and Greek mythology. Many, many historians, Bible scholars too, agree that the Christian idea of Trinity owes far more to Greek philosophy and its predecessor, pagan polytheism, than to the monotheism of the Jew and the Jewish Jesus. That troubles me as a Bible reader. I believe in one God, true and eternal, no more one. One, how about you? Did you know that 4,000 years ago, the ancient Sumerian culture had a trinity? And even though Samaria was overcome by the Assyrians and the Babylonians, their views of a triune godhood carried on into and through the ages. A historian named S.H. Hook describes the Sumerian trinity in his book, Babylonian and Assyrian Religion. He says, Anu was the primary god of heaven, the father and the king of the gods. And Enlil is the wind god, the god of the earth, the creator god. And Enki was the god of the waters and the lord of wisdom. 
Anu, Enlil, and Enki, three persons of this God. This Trinity God pushed then into Babylonia, and historian H. Sags writes that the Babylonian triad consisted of, quote, three gods of roughly equal rank, whose inner relationship is of the essence of their natures. Hmm. Another author, Alexander Hislop, in his book, The Two Babylons, or The Papal Worship, describes the Babylonian triune God saying, quote, in the unity of that one only God of the Babylonians, there were three persons. And to symbolize that doctrine of the Trinity, they employed the equilateral triangle, just as it is well known in the Roman church does to this day. So there's the Sumerian and Babylon uh, uh, view of their triune God. Let's look at Egypt. They believed in a God named Amun, Amun, okay? According to George Hart, lecturer of the British Museum, professor of ancient Egypt hieroglyphics at the University of London, Amun was really three gods in one. Amun was the hidden god, Re was the hidden god's face, and Ptah was the hidden god's body. Speaking of this god, historian Will Durant in his book Oriental Heritage, page 201, says that Ra, Amun, and Ptah were, quote, combined as three embodiments or aspects of one supreme and triune deity. Hornung, in his book Conceptions of God in Ancient Egypt, The One and the Many, presents a hymn to Amun that was hidden, and it was found, it was written in the 14th century B.C. This is the lyrics to that ancient song. All gods are three, Amun, Re, Ptah. They have no equal. His name is hidden as Amun, and he is Re before men, and his body is Ptah. What do experts think about all of this preface material did to the Council of Nicaea's decision to adopt the concept of a trinity? Three persons, one God. Will Durant wrote in his book Caesar that, quote, from Egypt came the ideas of a divine trinity, page 595. Another guy, Dr. Gordon Lang, retired dean of humanities at the University of Chicago, agrees, saying that, quote, the worship of the Egyptian triad Isis, Serapsis, and the child Horus probably accustomed the early church theologians to the idea of a triune God and was influential in the formulation of the doctrine of the Trinity as set forth in the Nicene and Athanasian creeds. Let's look at a few more examples of the early influences that could have contributed, could have contributed to the man-made notion of Trinity. There was a group called the Etruscans, and they passed from and through Babylon into past Greece and then into Rome. Guess what they brought with them? That's right, baby, a triune God. The Etruscans' Trinity consisted of Tinea, Uni, and Minerva. To the Romans, the idea, the idea of a trinity, three, was new, but it didn't take long for them to adopt it and for it to go everywhere uh, uh, through uh, Rome and through Italy. Even the names of the Roman trinity, Juniper, Juno, and Minerva, 
reflect this ancestry taken from the uh, uh, Etruscans. Did Catholic Christianity borrow from these influences in its construction of its trinity? Again, historian Will Durant had thoughts on this saying, quote, Christianity did not destroy paganism, it adopted it. Listen to the advice that the Catholic Pope Gregory I, that's the first Gregory, I think there's been about 10 of them, listen to what he said way back in the day to Catholic missionaries. You must not interfere with any traditional beliefs or religious observance that can be harmonized with Christianity. Now, one of the single most distinguishing facts about the true ancient Judaism was its absolute refusal to embrace anything besides one monotheistic God. Listen to a few of the Old Testament passages that sweep away the idea that any other gods came before or after him. Of course, there's the great Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And in Isaiah, where God said, Before me there was no God formed, neither shall any be after me. And then he said in Isaiah 45, There is no other God. I am the Lord, and there is none else. We can read many passages that say, none before, none after me, I know not any, I am one. I think we can conclude without much difficulty that the concept of the Trinity did not come from Judaism. Judaism is monotheistic, true Christianity, its child is strictly monotheistic. So where on earth did this idea of a triadic or a triune God originate, and why is it so ubiquitously observed by Christian churches all over? I mean, really think about this. We embrace and we recite, we teach a man-made concept to describe God. And as in the case of some Christian apologists, we are considered not even true believers if we question or doubt the man-made title, Trinity. I read the same Bible as Dr. James White. I see Jesus as the author and finisher of my faith. I believe he is God, that there is one God, but if I reject the non-biblical, man-made, pagan-based term Trinity, I'm challenged and considered unfit and ignorant because I don't go with what some guys made up and when you hear how, they, how and why they made it up, it's going to disturb you even more. I mean, why didn't God, if, this, if he wanted Trinity to be known, why didn't he articulate that clearly in the word? Instead, what he clearly articulates is, I am one. That's it. He does not give us triunity in that. It's a very mysterious uh, uh, way to twist scripture to come around to do the three persons. Now I know if you've always thought it, it makes sense. I embraced it because it made sense to me in that way. But as I've continued, I, like I said, I've changed on camera and I've noticed and I've seen. So I think that God would make it much, much more plain to understand that he is one, but three persons co-equal, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, instead of what we have. Now, Hear me clearly, please. Uh, most critics of Trinity uh, take the position that Jesus was not God. I am not in any way, shape, or form doing that. 
at all. Additionally, most people who agree that Jesus is God but reject the Trinity preach what has pejoratively been labeled Sabellianism or uh, modalism. And it's like a thought-killing cliche. If you go and you, and you question the Trinity and you suggest another route, instantly apologists and Christian defenders of the Trinity will say, you're a modalist. And then everyone says, oh, he's a modalist, and on they go. That's just a terrible thing. Modalism taught Sabelli, he was a guy who thought back in the day that the father became the son, and then the son became the Holy Spirit, and that is what modalism truly is. I am not preaching modalism at all. I'm not suggesting that the father became the son or the son became the Holy Spirit. Do I believe that the father, the son, and the Holy Spirit uh, uh, exist? Yes, absolutely. Do I believe that the Father is God? Yes. The Son is God? Yes. The Holy Spirit is God. Do I believe there is only one God? Yes. So isn't this the Trinity? No, it's not. And that's part of the problem is most rational thinking people, they read the Bible and they hear Trinity, they think that's what it's describing. That is not what it is describing. And we're going to get into that in a much uh, deeper level as we go on. Bottom line, we'll flesh this out in weeks to come, but bottom line, we have God. That's what we have. He is one. One God, always only and forever only one God, a monotheist God. Now, he has manifested himself in a number of different ways. Um, he has appeared as fire. In fact, the invisible God continues to be an all-consuming fire, according to Hebrews and Deuteronomy. He has spoken as a still small voice. He has spoken as thunder. He has appeared as clouds. He has appeared as mist, as wind, and an assortment of other ways. Were they all God? Yes. Manifestations of one God. Were they manifestations of more than one God? No. Our God is one monotheistic God. Did this God manifest himself in spirit? Well, that's the first way he manifested himself to uh, this earth from what we can tell because in the second verse of Genesis chapter one, this is what it says. And the earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep and the spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. So it seems to me God's first manifestation was his spirit brooding over the, the waters, I think it says from the Hebrew. Listen up. This single monotheistic God also, listen, also manifested himself in flesh. That's all. Not a new second or third person of a singular God co-equal in three persons of, of equal authority and power and knowledge with other persons. It's just another, albeit fleshly, manifestation of the single God. Jesus said it plainly to Philip. He said, Jesus, Philip said, Jesus, show us the Father. And Philip said, if, Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Now, the thing that makes this clear is in the Greek, the word for see is traditionally blepo. That means me seeing the chairs out in front of me. That's blepo. But that is not what the Greek word is when Jesus says, if you have seen me. It's horeo. And you know what that means? It's better means, if you have discerned me, Philip, 
You have discerned the Father. It doesn't mean the literal see, this is the shit. Oh, so if I, the Mormons say, well, if you, Jesus was saying, if you've seen me, you've seen Daddy because I'm right, looking just like him. That's not what it means at all. It means if you've discerned me as God in the flesh, Philip, you've discerned the Father. It's one God. That's all I'm saying. The Spirit, God. The Son, God. The Father, God. The only deal about God being the or a father is in relationship to becoming a son. He was not a father until he manifested himself as the son. Then he became the father. There's really no more complicated than this. God is one who manifests himself in a bunch of different ways. If the manifestation is from God, then the manifestation is God, sent by the one God to teach us of himself. That is a much clearer, easier, rational, biblical way to understand who we worship and how Christians are monotheistic, how Jesus is God in the flesh, how the Holy Spirit is God, how the Father consuming fire is God, and how they are one God. But this three persons that makes a single God, the three persons together then form that God, that is Trinitarian. And it's just not right. It's not so. So where did all this stuff come about? Three persons, co-equal, co-eternal, compromising from the one true God. Where did it come from? From men who want to create formulas and love control and ownership. And we're going to get to that and to the Council of Nicaea. And we're going to get to see how Gnosticism and the early Christians' resistance to it and the early Christians embracing it cross-pollinated into this council and how it all came about to them then adopting these pagan polytheistic notions of Trinity and bringing it, that word, into our vernacular as believers in the single monotheistic God. I have more, and the graphics are all done for next week. I tell our graphic people so they don't kill me when we're done. And we'll pick that up. But we're gonna go to the uh, phones and get John from San Antonio with an update from Monson and the lawsuit in just a minute. First, are we ready for, uh, did I, yeah. Our, John, hang on the phone and we're gonna get right to you after this.
Get ready. We're getting uh, things uh, going, and uh, we'll tell you all about that. We've got some great uh, pastor teachers who will be sharing the Word of God. Hopefully, we're going to have uh, Alistair Begg. We definitely have Chuck Smith, and we're trying to get a number of others. Uh, we also have... Uh, Les Feldick, and then we've got a bunch of stuff in between, and uh, some talking about Mormonism, and we're going to get this rolling. It might be a soft start, but hang with us. Pray for us. If you want to talk to us tonight, 801-590-8413. There it is on your screen. John. Hey, Sean. How's it going? Good. Any news? Any update? Oh, yeah. So it's been a pretty eventful week. Um, So first, just kind of to lay the groundwork for what the case actually is. Um, It is brought forth by a guy named Tom Phillips, and he should be familiar to some people as the managing editor of mormonthink.com. He's a British citizen that uh, joined the church in his 20s and had a life full of just outstanding, you know, Mormon experiences. Um, He actually received uh, the secret ordinance of the second anointing. Wow. And so you'll, you'll read in the news, like I think there was a New York uh, uh, Wall Street Journal piece where they said, it, you know, it's, the case is brought out by ex-Mormons. That's not true. Tom Phillips is not an ex-Mormon. He is an active Mormon. And you'll know that when you receive the second anointing, your calling and election are made sure. So Ooh. for the church to then excommunicate you would be kind of an acknowledgement that that anointing is not legitimate. Wow. So he's got a little bit of a protective shield around him in that regard. So hmm. that's, that's a little bit by uh, who it is. Now next is what the case is about. So they've named Monson as the defendant, specifically because he's really the only member of the church. He is the corporate soul at the center of the corporation that is uh, you know, the church itself. And so he's the, the main target of it. It's based on a relatively new fraud law in the UK, and it has uh, provisions for standards of um, deception that are kind of unprecedented and untested in the religious realm. Hmm. So um, <clears throat> basically, the Monson couldn't simply say, well, I believe these things are true and provide that as a defense if they are demonstrably provable false based on science and, and, you know, common standards of logic. Mm. So they, as part of the summons, um, listed seven different points that are charges of fraud. Now, each of those points are distinctly unique in the Mormon way that they're portrayed. Um, This is in the context of a theology where tithing is not optional if you want to achieve everything that God has to offer. Mm. You know, if we were simply a church where you could or could not give tithing as your heart desired and it wouldn't have any bearing on your standing, that there's less of an inducement component to it. But Mm. when they teach that it's absolutely essential, then the inducement component is uh, a big part of it. Mm. So if you look at the seven points, you know, one of them is the Book of Abraham, and they can clearly show by the facsimiles that are published with it that that translation Joseph Smith provided was false. John, let me ask you, I'm sorry, John, let me ask you one question, Uh, just with the facsimiles. I have heard, tell me if you know if this is right or not, that because they have used these props like facsimiles to prove the faith, uh, that, that this is a big part of the lawsuit, that they've actually 
used in the past what they presented as authentic things that have been proven fraudulent, and that's part of the case. Do you know anything about that? Yeah, that is the crux of the case, okay. is that they are using these things that are tangible, that are demonstrably provenable false, to, in, to induce people to believe their truth claims that then in, you know, induce them to pay tithing. That's amazing. Okay, so I won't go over all seven points, but when you evaluate them, there are things that are uniquely Mormon. The, the only one that may give them problems is the idea that there are two people who are the progenitors of everybody on earth. Now, there are probably some other faiths that believe that as well, but those faiths may not have such a strong uh, requirement of tithing. And so it's possible that that one charge may be thrown out, but uh, wow. we'll see. Now, this is all just kind of unique. The most remarkable thing is that Every citizen of the UK is potentially a victim of this fraud. And the reason is that there is a system in Europe where people who donate to charities have a percentage of their donation that the charity can claim from the UK government out of tax funds. And it's a, it's a system called um, the, uh, let's see if I can find it, it's called the Gift Aid Program. And um, you can look it up in, in British tax law, but essentially about 20 percent of donated tithes, uh, the church has been claiming from tax uh, revenue that the government oh. has through their program. So since the inception of this law, there's been about 60 million pounds collected through this program. So if this case were to go forward, and if Monson were not able to defend himself successfully, then that would have established that um, they had defrauded the UK government and all their taxpayers out of it. So there's actually, it's more than just a frivolous suit that's brought up on, you know, religious points. It's, it's got some teeth in it. Now, that being said, if they're successful in, in England in prosecuting this, then it sets a precedent that um, will allow America to consider um, the church having engaged in what they call RICO um, or Racketeer Influence and Corrupt <laughs> Organization Act case. And so the U.S. could potentially have some grounds to move against them. Um, this wow. Is speculation. Wow, that's a good speculation, John. What a great report. I, you know, maybe I stood, stand completely wrong and ignorant of, of it doing anything. I really appreciate your, your taking the time. Keep going this week and call in next week. If you'll just call in, if you don't have anything new, just tell us. And if you have something new, we'll just keep you as our liaison to keep us informed. Okay, and I'll write a summary of everything and put it on my blog at thoughtsandthingsandstuff.com. That's thoughtsonthingsandstuff.com, all one word. Thoughtsandthingsandstuff.com. Thoughtsonthingsandstuff.com. Yep. All right, John, thanks so much. All right, take care. God bless, bye-bye. Wow, that's, you know, that's, I, I, uh, I'm really not much for lawsuits and stuff, but this is phenomenal. It's phenomenal because it's been a fraud. It's been a fraud from the get-go, and maybe they're getting their head handed to them. Somebody, maybe here in this audience, pointed out to me that they asked a medical uh, person who deals with uh, helping the poor with medical issues here in the United States, what do one of those mobile medical units cost to get going and, and, and establish so that they have the swabs for strep and the inoculations and the bandages and the thing itself? And they gave them the figure of $50,000. And then they said, so if we take that figure 
and we divide that figure into the cost of uh, the shopping mall downtown that the LDS church made, how many of these mobile units could they put around the United States uh, for people who needed health care to help them out with illnesses for free? And the figure turned out to be 1,200 of them per state. So, uh, you know, you, you start looking at figures and you start hearing about this stuff, the money game and what could be done and the profit of the church cutting the ribbon and saying, let's go shopping in the big wonderland down there. And, you know, I'm really glad to see it. I'm really, really happy to see this. And I hope it carries through and they are, their feet are held to the fire for the fraud. If you really want something interesting, um, and we're going to go to some emails next, before we wrap it up, go back to the 1950s and 60s and look at the literature. If you can find the books that they used to print and that I used to read when I was a kid of, and it would show like these drawings and illustration by, by these uh, LDS painters of the actual gold plates and, and these just fantastic representations of exactly what went, what went on. We used to hand out books of Mormon that were painted gold with, with inscriptions of what the Book of Mormon actually looked like. All of these props have been used to teach the children and teach the teens and the seminaries of how true all this is, and it's all based on air. And uh, that is not how God has established his word, not on air. Uh, in our emails, I found this in our file. It's a number of questions. And uh, uh, one of the files, it says, why would God create billions of people knowing beforehand that the vast majority of them would end up burning and screaming forever, trillions upon trillions of years in torture and agony in hell? 1 Peter 1, 19 through 20 tells us God knew mankind would sin and would need Jesus to die on the cross before he even created us. Why did God create all of them to do this? And my answer is he didn't. Uh, second question, how can God justify sending billions of people who have never heard the gospel to hell when the Bible itself says, how can they believe in him when they have not heard? How can they hear without a preacher? And it goes on to say the importance of faith and in a believer's life to be saved. And, and the way I can understand this, and I'm not going to use the scriptures because I'm not prepared, but the way I understand this is in this way. By his foreknowledge, before he created the world, by his foreknowledge of our free will choices, God elected certain people to certain things. He elected the nation of Israel, of all other nations, to be his people, to bring forth the Messiah, to bring forth the Holy Writ, the Word of God through the prophets and apostles. He elected them by his foreknowledge of what they would be like. Doesn't mean necessarily always good doesn't necessarily mean evil. He, by his foreknowledge, used them. And then he goes on, and he then, by his foreknowledge, saves Gentiles and Jews alike today by the process of belief, by the process of them hearing and believing, believing in their heart, confessing with their mouth. And he saves a remnant of, of, of the house of Israel and then Gentiles from what? From hell. From the second death, from the lake of fire, he saves us from that. And the means he does that is by our faith, by our acquiescence to his Holy Spirit calling upon us. Well, what about everybody else? By his foreknowledge. 
He knew what the stubborn would be like. He knew that hearing people preach on street corners and on TV wasn't going to reach them. And so he has another plan by which to bring them about, to bring about the full restitution of what he has known from the beginning. We in the church are known as his first fruits of many. It says that in scripture. And so of many to come. So that is how I see him doing it and the question being a little bit irrelevant. How can God send a nice Chinese man who never heard of Jesus but worked hard to feed his family, commit some sins like the rest of us, and died to hell to burn forever in agony? Isn't the punishment way out of proportion to the crime? Why doesn't God's system of justice seem so different than the one he has asked us to follow? I would suggest to you that God's system of justice is superior by, a light, by light years of what he's asked us to follow. And if Jesus says, look, if you as a man would give somebody who, who asks you for uh, food, a fish, what do you think the father of lights would do? So he's more than just, more than merciful. The idea of the burning forever in hell is something that you need to examine and look at, but a loving God hasn't done that. We don't know, remember when it says he pours his wrath out, the cup of his indignation is a cup. In the Hebrews, when they talked about something that would flow and that would not stop, they spoke of rivers. They didn't speak of cups of his wrath. It's just a small portion that is poured out on those, not a river of his wrath, where Jesus says those who are filled with the Holy Spirit, from their belly shall flow a river of living water. That's the Jews' idea of an eternal flowing out upon. But God's wrath is held in a cup. And it says that those who have been disobedient will receive their part, their part of that cup. All right, let's go to Curtis in Clearwater, Florida. Curtis is called many times, but he's interesting. Curtis, you're on heart of the matter. How's it going, Sean? It's going good. How you doing? I'm doing great. I just uh, had a quick question for you, nothing too much. Uh, your earlier statements about God and multiplicity of gods and all that, in Hebrew, in the book of Genesis, the word God is translated from the word Elohim. And in Hebrew, whenever you add the letter I am to the end of the word, it's a male plural. Like the plural version of the word seraph is seraphim, cherub is cherubim. So if God is calling himself Elohim, and then you go down to verse, you know, chapter 1, verse 26, and God said, let us make a man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea. Uh, so God created man in his own image. So if, if God refers to himself in the plural version, what do you, what do you think of that? Well, are you telling me that God is not monotheistic? Well, I'm, I'm telling you, is it, do you disagree that that's what the Hebrew says? Oh, not at all. I think the Hebrew absolutely says that. And I have no problem with his word being uncreated and from eternity to eternity. Uh, when he says us, he remember, he spoke everything into existence. He said, let there be light. And there was light. He said it was from his word. His word was with him. So when it said, let us, he's speaking of his word, which became flesh. But it's still one God. You know, the, the, the Trinitarian... Well, what do you think? It, well, I was asking, what do you think of the... Obviously, he refers to himself in the plural. Yeah. But he wouldn't put I am at the end of his name. If right. It wasn't plural, he wouldn't say us and our. Right. But, so what, do you, what, do you, what does that mean to you? Well, it means to me that he's referring to his pre-incarnate son 
who would become flesh, who was his pre-incarnate son, his word from one God. So the problem is, is I can flip your question and say, well, you tell me who is us. Because if you, if you, are you saying there's more than one God? Who is us then? I don't know what the nature of God is. I, I mean, I don't presume to know whether he's a triune or a singular entity like the, the Islams. I mean, the Muslims say that we don't actually believe in a, a monotheistic God. They say we believe in a polytheistic God. So I, 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 people make all kinds of claims about the nature of God. I don't know what he is. I think the idea that we can really wrap our mind around is kind of, kind of pretentious and arrogant. But I, I don't know. I'm just I'm telling you that's what the scripture says, and I'm just asking you what you think. Of and, and I'm I, not and uncomfortable I, with the idea that God is somehow multiple in some nature. Yeah, I know. So what does that mean to yeah, you? I told you it meant he's when he says us. You know, he is talking about his word, and by his word he created all things. But his word is him. His word is, comes from him. His word created things. When he says, let us, he's speaking of his word, and his word became flesh. The word was with him from the beginning. But to make his word necessary to exist, and his spirit necessary to exist, and the Father necessary to exist to create God, I disagree with that completely. Those are the three persons, which makes it very difficult to worship a single God. So in my opinion, again, Curtis, I think that there's no contradiction of the single God, Hero Israel, our Lord, our God is one. I have no contradiction when he says, let us, believing that it was God speaking of, of himself and, and the word that was with him. And, okay, I just wanted to know what you thought about yeah. those verses. I mean, it, it, yeah. it, it seems pretty clear God calls himself Elohim, which is plural, and... But when you say it's kind of obvious to you, then what you're saying is God is plural? There are many? There are more than one? I am saying that I don't know the nature of God, but that's what the scripture says. So is, you're, but you are saying... Uh, I know that triangle, one triangle has three points. And you, to try and claim that God has to fit into some sort of box, he can be this and he can't be that... I think it's a little is a little arrogant. Actually, the arrogance is on the, the nature of God. The arrogance is on multiple, the Trinity. He could be singular in some nature. I don't know. The but I, I think the, the the text makes it clear that it's not necessarily as simple as saying he has to be this. I'm not saying he has to be. Remember, I said in my what I just said, Curtis, was that he manifests himself in clouds, in fire, in wind, in small voices, in flesh, in spirit. They're all the singular God. I don't put him in the box. The Trinitarians put him in the box. That is the arrogance. That they say that he is those three persons and yet one of co-equal authority and equal knowledge, etc., etc. That is boxing God up. So I think you may have misread. I think it's a fair interpretation of the text. I, mean, I don't think anybody needs to be a dogmatic about it. I think if you want to read well, the Bible... you better Bible tell that to your friend who you want me to debate. One, that's, that's a fair interpretation. You might disagree with it, but... Well, you might want to tell I that... I don't think you, it's something that has to be too important. Well, you might want to tell that to your friend you want me to debate, Curtis. Because your friend, <laughs> your friend who you want me to debate doesn't believe that I have any knowledge of the Christian God at all. Because I don't agree with the Trinitarian concept. Write him right, an email. He's not my friend. He's not my friend. I just said that if someone, if you're willing to attack someone's beliefs and they want to challenge you, I think that it's incumbent on you to be willing to respond to that. If you did not want to 
getting in the ring with someone, you shouldn't have gone after their beliefs. Yeah, I'm not going after James White's beliefs. I'm going after Calvinism. It's just like I'm not going after my next-door neighbor Mormon's beliefs. I'm going after Mormonism. To me, there's a difference. James White likes to ad hominem attack to go after the man. That's what this is going to lead to, Curtis, but we'll do our best to avoid it. Okay, man. All right. Have fun and good luck with that. Thank you. you Thanks. Good to talk to you. Bye-bye. Okay, and if God is trying to advance his kingdom as much as possible and save as many people as possible during this age, why are we losing the battle so badly? This is number question number six. Why is Satan getting so many souls to go to hell than we are able to get to go to heaven? It's a great question. Ask yourself, ask yourself, who wins the war? God, Satan, or man? Who wins? If God is sovereign, if he is love, if he's in control of everything like we say, God's in charge, who wins? Does Satan get to beat him at his own game? You know, just ask yourself that question. I I don't believe that Satan wins. And the way it sounds, the way you hear from over the pulpit, is Satan is winning, and Satan is dragging most people to the fires of hell forever and ever. And I'm not saying they don't, some people don't go there, but there is no fires in the hell anyway. But I, I'm just saying God wins this, and he does it through the processes that are biblical, and there is a cost, and there is a price to pay for not receiving God and, uh, through Christ in this life, a major one. That's why we share but it doesn't mean that God loses. If an unsaved person goes to hell immediately when they die, how can God justify giving them this horrible punishment before he gives them their chance to be judged at the great white throne? This is part of the the big misinterpretation of the order of things and what goes on in those things. Just let me quickly say it and we're gonna wrap it up for tonight. I don't think there's any calls. It works like this. We're in this world. You choose. Do you receive Christ? The Holy Spirit is calling to all people. Each one of you, if you haven't received what he has to offer, the Holy Spirit has been calling endlessly for you. And you choose. You're going to believe on him or not. The picture for this was Jesus' time. He comes to the nation of Israel. He goes to Jerusalem and he preaches. He says, if you don't believe that I am, you will die in your sin. The picture was those who believed on Christ They were saved when Jerusalem was destroyed from destruction. Those who did not believe on Christ were sent to destruction. There's the picture for us. How does it play out now? Today, you have a choice. Believe on Christ or not. If you believe on him when you die, you go to him. You go to him in a resurrected body. You have your meeting with Christ. You are his. That is it. If you do not, you go and you face destruction like like the people at Jerusalem did. You go to Hades. You go to the resting place. It, it, it is not a good place. It's a place of torments, but it's not the place of fire. So that solves that question. And uh, why is he punishing? Why is this horrible punishment of fire going on before the great white throne? It's not. Hell, Hades is just the holding tank. That's where the departed who have not believed go. And they are there until all the redeemed have exited this world and been resurrected. And when that happens, then hell gives up its dead and everybody comes out of that place and they get their resurrected body fitted for the lake of fire. That's what scripture says. 
they are given a body that goes to the lake of fire, which is in the presence of the Lord and his holy angels, Revelation chapter 14 or Revelation chapter 10. And they go to this lake of fire and there they experience who knows what. And they are being purged of whatever it is. And I don't want to know. It's not a good thing. They are being burned. They are being uh, whatever happens there. It's an ugly picture. But nevertheless, they, are, they go to hell and then they go to that great white throne and then they're cast into that lake of fire, which lasts as long as the cup of his wrath and indignation lasts. And then it says all will be, God will have all in all and Jesus will be the victor and he will hand the kingdom entirely over to God. And it says death, he has victory over death, over sin and death. That's first death, that's second death, whatever you wanna say. Next week, we're gonna go on and show what happened with all this triune history and this pagan practice, this Hellenistic thought as it came in and suddenly, remember Paul says in 2 Thessalonians, hey, there is the destroyer is all around us now. He's saying there is all kinds of heresy and stuff going on around us right now. By the time we get to 300 AD, all the apostles are dead. We are talking about one major cluster and we have Constantine who says, all right, we gotta come up with a state religion. How are we gonna describe our God? And they get that council together and they come up with Trinity and we've embraced it ever since. So we'll be talking about that next week. Join us here on Heart of the Matter. See you then. You guys are good.